Let's say a bracha for studying Torah together. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. This parsha is called Truma, which means gifts. Laharim means to raise up. Truma means, I guess, that which is raised up. Um, hi, Diane. Hi. But it means gifts. And um, reminding you that Moses is now up on the mountain. He'll be up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the way the rabbis read this is that meanwhile, back at the ranch, which they can't do at the same time, so it comes, comes in a parallel portion later, is the children of Israel losing, completely losing their confidence and their faith and building the golden calf. So we won't talk too much about that now, but uh, that's kind of the, how it's understood. You have to have page uh, 545. And so now Moses is getting um, detailed instructions, that's what this portion is, to bring back to the people on how to construct a mishkan or a mikdash, a sanctuary in which God's presence can dwell. If you look on 544, the instructions are so detailed that we can recreate an actual floor plan. That's how detailed the instructions are and where everything was supposed to go. And then, of course, this is not a, this is, we'd have to look at other, instru- at other uh, close-ups to see how the altar is supposed to be built, how the menorah is supposed to be built, but it's all here. A building of the Holy of Holies. And um, the question that the rabbis are going to ask among many, but one of the central questions is, wait, why do we need to build a house for God? We just left Egypt, um, the land of idolatry. What do we need to build a house for God for? In other words, we're not the first people to ask that question. Now, for me, the kind of sociological or anthropological answer is simple, is that people need a place to focus their attention. Right? But on the more spiritual level, they ask the question of, well, but they just saw God part the Red Sea and they stood at Mount Sinai and it's like there were no intermediaries. What do we need an institutionalized priesthood for? That's a good question, isn't it? So I just want you to know that that's an ancient question that, the, that, that in students of the Torah have asked, going as far back, which I really appreciate, right? Because it's an important question, rather than just accepting as a basic fact that, of course, we have a, hered- a hereditary priesthood, and only certain people can really get that close to God. Right? It goes against everything that just happened before. So the rabbinic understanding is is that it's because of the golden calf that God realizes that these people need a focus. 
because clearly while while Moses is getting these instructions God as it were the the rabbis flip the timeline and say this is happening while the golden calf is going on and God is realizing that they need the they need this they need this focus um, but it's still a live question for rabbinic commentators and especially Jewish mystical commentators in the Zohar and Hasidic commentary about what's this talking about and we'll and we'll look at the key verse that opens up this question so let's read it slowly and we'll get to verse 8 and then we'll we'll uh, launch into that but let's take our time because we have time and so Yodhevave spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the children of Israel to take gifts for me. Um, you shall accept gifts from me, for me from every person whose heart is so moved. Whose heart is Nadiv is a volunteer in modern Hebrew, right? So it's freely offered. That's what Nidava means. From them you will take my gifts. So one of the first things that gets asked here is: uh, Does God mean when it says Vayikuli Truma? Is also like one of those lech lecha moments. What? Wait. What? Why did they yichuli? Because it means take for me gifts, but it can also mean take take my gifts. Take. So one of the things the rabbis like to say, and I brought Rashi today because uh, he uh, he's the best digester of of rabbinic um, uh, of rabbinic um, commentary is the idea that what they're actually bringing God is God's stuff already. So that's an interesting, interesting aside there. And these are the gifts that you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood. Okay, so hold on with the dolphin skins. The Hebrew word is is techashim, um, and no one knows what it means. In the 11th century, Rashi says techashim. I like this. Um, uh, Tehashim. Min chaya, some kind of beast. Beast? Beast. Some kind of uh, creature. Velohaita elelesha'a, but it only existed at that time. It doesn't exist anymore. Veharbeg vanim hayula, it had many colors. That's why the ancient uh, translations call it something called a saskuna. What's a saskuna? We don't know what a saskuna is. Uh, because it rejoiced and prided itself on its many colors. 
So nobody knows what Tchashim are, right? Maybe it's unicorns. We have no idea what Tchashim are. So I just wanted to point out that, that for some reason the um, translators went after the idea of dolphin. Who catches dolphins and skins dolphins? I, in the I, desert. In the de- well, they're by the Red Sea. Oh, okay. And there are lots of dolphins in the Red Sea. So um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out. I like that. I like that. Um, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Those are the special um, uh, gems, accessories that the high priest wears. And then verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The asuli mikdash, v'shachanti betocham. And that verse, which actually we put up on our wall out there, uh, above our donor's wall, it says that quote: "Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell betocham." Which what's toch? Within. So if you say betochi, it means within me. So it either means, and this is what goes back as far as our interpretive tradition, build me a mikdash, a sanctuary, vishachanti, that I may dwell. So that's why mikdash and mishkan are synonyms. Because a mishkan means a place of shachan, of dwelling. And a mikdash means a place of holiness. And they're interchangeable in Hebrew. Make me a place of holiness that I can dwell bitocham. That either means among them or within them. So is, it a, is God saying, build me a sanctuary? It seems the plain meaning of the text is, build me a sanctuary so that I may dwell amongst them. Because the rest of the story as we read, is that they build it, and then God's presence comes down the Shekhinah and dwells amongst them. Uh, but for the spiritual interpretation, maybe this also means dwell within them. And that's the most important thing to know about this verse. The answer is both, depending on how you're reading it. Um, and then it says, and Exactly as I show you the pattern of this Mishkan and the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make it. And then the Parsha goes on to describe how to build the ark where the tablets are going to rest, how to build the cherubs, which are going to guard the ark, how to build the menorah of seven-branched menorah out of gold, how to build the altar, how to build the wall hangings, how to weave them, how to hang them, everything, which again, as a younger person, was the most boring portion for me in the world. Um, But I like it a lot better now. Uh, Why? Because if I understand it as not just interior furnishing, but the fact that everything in this diagram has a symbolic meaning. So then it becomes much more interesting to try to discern what the symbolic thrust of each of these objects is and what the tradition says about it. Because 
when I came to, the answer to the why is when I came to understand that the people who wrote the Torah and who practiced this were in no way literalists. In fact, when they said as above, so below, everything they created to be part of the home for God represented something that they thought about was the nature of, of the cosmos. So, uh, and the rabbis understand this too. And so they have, when they talk about, they will talk about each of these objects and the layout of it. Hi, Gail. Hi. If you want the Chumashim over there. Each of these objects in the layout, the rabbis will compare either to the human form, and they'll say, this represents the eyes, and this part represents the heart, and this part, and because they want us to understand that this mishkan is a symbolic representation that can be overlaid on any place that you want to make holy. And then they'll also talk about how this layout is also representative of the cosmos itself. It's a microcosm. And it's a microcosm that they are creating with pa- in this pattern to, sh- to, to give their, to a map to, to show their understanding of the nature of the universe with this inextinguishable, incredible force right at the center of it. So, so it then becomes a representation not just of, it not, it's not just holy interior design. It's all meaningful. So that's when it got interesting for me. When I came to understand that it, my literalness was my um, inexperience with Torah. Um, and, that it, and, that if we, and that the whole tradition dating back to its origins had no intention of being treated only as literal. Is, is this layout a, a, an architectural theme that takes place many years later as to why the Ashkenaz have the, the bima in one location in front of everybody and not the way we have it? The answer is no, but, <laughs> but it, there's other things to talk about that, that are true about how we lay out a synagogue. Um, and first, let me talk about churches. When the temple was destroyed in the first century, the temple, the holy temple, when it's built in Jerusalem, follows this pattern. So the Mishkan is the portable temple. When they build the permanent temple, it's laid out in exactly the same dimensions. So uh, that's important to understand. This is, this is the map of the cosmos that they want to represent. And um, you can call the, the outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. Uh, we've talked about it as a microcosm of the mountaintop that Moses is on and how the children of Israel have to stay at the base, but the elders get to go up to the next level of Aaron and then only Moses and then Aaron as his representative can go into, up to the highest point of the mountain. So it's also an ascent. But what I want, uh, hold on, can you remember that question? Don't forget it. Um, so, the Catholic Church, who took as their inspiration the Torah and added the New Testament, 
kept the priesthood alive. And Catholic churches and cathedrals are designed to reflect this layout. If you've been to Mass, I've only been a few times, there's a part of the church that only the priests can go in. It's behind a screen. The Holy of Holies talks about the screen, right? The incense in the Catholic Church and the bread and the wine. There's a table for bread display. There's an incense altar. The priesthood of the Catholic Church retained all of this. And so this is, in fact, the inspiration for the layout of a Catholic Church, which is fascinating, isn't it? However, in Jewish tradition, the Holy of Holies had become located somewhere on the mountain of Moriah in Jerusalem. When it was destroyed, we didn't replicate it. Instead, in the synagogue, we symbolically carried over some of its aspects, such as we have an ark just like the Ark of the Covenant that sits in there. Above the Ark, we have an eternal light. That was the menorah represented. In front of the Ark, there's something called a paroche, a curtain. We don't have curtain here, we just have doors. But that curtain was specifically to reflect um, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. Also, we dress our Torahs in these covers, that have bells on the bottom and a breastplate, just like the high priest wore, as well as the finials, the, the rimonim the, that we put on the uh, top of the Torah. All of that to dress the Torah in recollection of the high priest. So we didn't take the literal layout because for Jews, the temple was destroyed and that was it. So no, that doesn't reflect where the bima is or anything like that. But we took aspects of it and, and uh, made our synagogues remem- remind us of aspects of that. And one more thing. The other thing that rabbinic Judaism did in the, in the um, absence of the temple was they transformed the Shabbos table into a remembrance of the temple. Um, the, and they called it a mikdash ma'at, a micro or mini sanctum. And so there's the bread, the two loaves, and the salt, which is a reminder of the salting of the offerings in the temple. And there are the light, the candles. And so the rabbis made it so that because we don't have high priests anymore, that everyone on Shabbos is, as it were, a Kohen Hagadol at their own table. So Judaism eliminated cathedrals and sacred spaces after the temple was destroyed, which many Jews will say was to our everlasting benefit because we could then democratize Judaism in a way that the Catholic Church say never a direction they never took. There's still a priestly hierarchy, and they still are the intermediaries between God and their flock. But 
Judaism has this other tradition, which is that we don't need intermediaries. And the priests lost their privileged position after the destruction of the temple. And so we didn't try to recreate this except in symbolic ways. So that's a long answer, but I hope a clear answer to, to your question. There was other question. I have another one. Later. Okay, Anne. Um, looking at this picture, it looks like it would accommodate, this tabernacle would accommodate several people. <clears throat> the people in the front <clears throat> uh, before the curtain and the space behind it. I thought that <clears throat> he bought, he, he wanted to give instructions to make a tabernacle that would be portable, that they could carry. Yes. And so I always thought that they only carried the Ark of the Covenant. The oh, no. The Levites had a lot of subgroups who were each assigned a different aspect of portage. Um, now, look at this. Ten cubits. Yeah, how big is that? Um, Fifteen feet. Oh, that's big. To carry. Oh, oh, everything. All the enclosures are made of, of uh, tapestries. Oh. Everything comes oh, down. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. And gets rolled up. All right. And the ark has to be carried. The altar has to be disassembled and carried. The, it all has to be carried, but it's all, uh, it's a tent. So they're camping. Oh. Uh, it's a very nice tent. Um, so, so the Holy of Holies was 15 feet by 15 feet. Not very big. That is probably a foul shot. That's probably about this, right? And uh, that's how I judge 15 feet. <laughs> anyway, and then there was, that was the sanctum, inner sanctum. Um, then the, um, what was that old radio show? Uh, inner sanctum, oh. right. Inner sanctum, With a creaking yeah. door, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and then there's the outer sanctum which is about twice its size and then there was the whole enclosure which is large it's 50 by 100 so it's 75 feet by 150 feet um, that's about the size of say our entire sanctuary bigger bigger ours is 50 by 100 so it's, it's big enough. It was big space but that was just an outdoor courtyard but it was surrounded by more Enclosure. So the Levites had a lot of schlepping to do, but it was all disassembled. Yeah. That's, right. Does that help? Yes. Um, were there special people? The Levites. Or, oh, uh, the, the, the Levites who, and it must have taken more than several. There just were a to, lot of Levites. Carry, no, the, just to carry the ark. That's right. The Levites, well, it took, it, they describe it. The, the ark has... Um, rings attached to it and two long carrying poles yeah. and so it took porters a number of porters but the ark itself is a small object so it and it was made by wood overlaid with gold and it had the stone tablets inside so it describes maybe four people maybe eight people okay um, it wasn't these were not huge objects I understand. Um, um, so the Levites are a tribe. They're the tribe of Levi. And of the 12 tribes, they are assigned the job of 
maintaining the sanctuary. The Kohens, which means priests, are a, are a family within the Levite tribe. As a result of them being the keepers of the sanctuary, the Levites do not get a land holding when they enter Israel. Instead, they are assigned to the temple. And that's who they are. Uh, Bob, you wanted to? Yeah, I'm back a bit. Uh, when you said that everything described here uh, can be taken at different levels, that, that metaphor can and is meant to be, to be. in so my reading. What is some of the commentary on why they talk about uh, lapis? Uh, Oh, the, the 12 specific. precious gems, lapis lazuli, and then there's 12, 11 other gems that they talk about. Yeah, what's some of the metaphorical meaning of that? That stuff gets talked about, but I don't know. Okay. Thank you for asking. That is not something I have delved into. Right. But Gail may know. As far as I know, it has to do with the zodiacal signs. Oh, that's right. The, hold on, I'll talk a little louder. The zodiac. Oh, I think she's right. The zodiac was the ancient map of the cosmos. Right? Now we think of it as the constellations, astrology, but back then it was, it was the symbolic map of the cosmos. So by referring to the different gems, they're referring to different, different Right, the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes is a symbolic number because each tribe represented one, um, what should I say, 36 degree slice of the whole circle. Okay. Therefore, the 12 tribes represented the fullness of the cosmos, and each one was also associated, and we know this uh, from ancient times, with one of, the zodiac, one of the signs of the zodiac, and so it's logical to assume that the gemstones each were associated with that um, Sign of the zodiac. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, Gail. So the ancient uh, audience oh. or reader oh, um, would understand that more easily than we. We exactly. We, we read the the gems as gems, and they would hear it quite clearly another way. That is my educated guess because since the Copernican Revolution we have learned to look at the universe in a completely different way. But we have enough evidence from texts from all over the ancient world, including Roman and Greek uh, medical manuals, and uh, that they had a different map. They had a different map, which we can know about. So that is a really reasonable, educated guess, Diane. And we also know from anthropology that when you study tribes, uh, anthropological studies, Tribes that haven't adopted our scientific view of the universe, there is a default a na of mapping the universe in a symbolic way. Um, as above, so below, seeing patterns and everything that we now would have to say we have to abandon our very important analytical uh, scientific technique in order to go into our more associative and poetic mind 
And we can also argue, as we've said many times, that what ails, one of the things that ails us in the modern world is that we have lost a sense of the sacred in the universe and that a way to recover it would be to be able to hold both maps at the same simultaneously and know which map you're referring to. Uh, and in that way, we would say re-enchant our experience of the world around us. That the tree is a tree, but the tree is also stands for something. You know, and uh, the confusion for people is that it's hard to do both things. Um, and also, when we've been trained to completely discount the symbolic as meaningful, we have to really, really work constantly to keep it and understand. But if we don't, this makes no sense to us. It, I'm having a hard time with it tonight. Okay. Okay. Gail? I, I remember being really surprised in Israel at the um, early, I mean, common era, but the remnants of... Um, Synagogue the floors. And the floors all had zodiacs on them. Right. You know? Which when you, shocked me. <laughs> right. Shocks so many modern people. Shocked me at first, too. Um, when you go to Israel, many mosaic floors have been uncovered. Many, you know, a good number. I wonder how many synagogue floors have been uncovered uh, that were from the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries of the Common Era, usually. And they, in the center of each of these floors is a giant zodiac with symbolic representations of each of, this, of the, um, what do you call them? Signs. Signs. And the name of the tribe associated with that sign, plus a picture of the sun in the middle, usually a, an Apollo kind of thing with a chariot and all that, plus uh, on the four corners, the four seasons, but represented by female figures who represent the four uh, um, uh, winds, the four humors, or in other words, four directions. the four direct, all that stuff. So that means that the worldview, the cosmology of the third, fourth, fifth century was that. And they were simply making a map of the cosmos on their floor as well as, you will always see on these floors, pictures, pictures of the ancient temple, lulav and etrog, shofar. There will often be depictions of Abraham and Isaac. So there are, by the way, so there's human forms. Um, and so you start to understand that the depiction of human forms varies wildly across the Jewish world. It says, you shall not make a graven image of me. Well, they didn't consider that a graven image, even though other, under especially Muslim influence later, took it much more um, uh, ascetically and harshly. And the other thing that's my favorite about those floors is there's always writing in the floors, usually in Greek, because that was the language, that was like us having English on our uh, walls here, because that's what everybody who comes in actually knows best, because Hebrew was already a language of prayer and study, but not the spoken language, that lists the donors, <laughs> which I really enjoy. It lists the big donors, but it's in the mosaic floor. So some things don't change. Did the zodiac also have the signs of the animal? Absolutely. Crab, goat, 
They're all there. Fish, twins. In the synagogue. Yep. Okay. Yep. Times, times change, everybody. Gail, and then back to uh, Ted. I, I was looking. I got my phone out because I have uh, one picture here of a rod. And I yes. And I to say that um, there's this temple. There's a temple. Um, the remains of a temple in a rod. A rod is in uh, the Negev. Right. And it's a national monument in Israel that's not visited that much. And it is the remains of a temple that belonged to the time of, Sol of Solomon. It's, it's like at least 8th century, 9th century, yeah. yeah. Goes. So now, by the way, she's going back a thousand years earlier. So right. don't get that. Before the Torah was right. written. But what I'm saying is don't get that confused right. with the mosaic floors I'm talking about now, which are more right. than a thousand years after that. Okay, and it's talking about something different. Right. So this was at a time where there was more than one temple. They were different. They weren't just centered in Jerusalem, right. and this was. But this was a very major one, and it was a military outpost for the kingdom, looking out over the plain mm -hmm. uh, toward the Midianites, as far as I know. And, mm -hmm. and down the towards the Dead Sea, yes. And down toward the Dead Sea, and when you come in, there's um, it's high up. It's on the mountain. Right. It's also a lookout post. It's part of the whole garrison, mm -hmm. but there is um, basically a, a very large altar of uncut stone. As it's supposed to be in the instructions. Outside. Mm -hmm. And then you walk into, I think it was first one, and then an outer courtyard, and then I think came to a second courtyard, which was about the size, I think, like from here to here. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit smaller, but basically mm -hmm. like this, with stone benches all around this way. And then the part that I have here that you can see has a bit of the stone bench, and then there's a step up into the holy... And then beyond the next step, you can barely make it out of this photograph, was the Holy of Holies, which originally had two tablets in it when the archaeologists opened it up. Really? Yeah, that's what I've read. So, so we saw one, which it turned out was, was a replica, because they're in the museum in Jerusalem. Which is right, they leave replicas there and move right. the originals um, to the museum. But they looked exactly the way the Nelson DeMille tablets looked like in, um, I have it here, in the... Uh, Ten cool. They exactly so the I encourage you, uh, you know, when I, when I get, I should I have my computer here with my little projector and I could just show you this stuff immediately. It's like, I got to get with it. But um, if you Google at home, um, mosaic synagogue floors in Israel, you'll have fun looking at them. Um, and this would be if you Googled uh, the temple of Arad. A-R-A-D. Yeah. So, um, uh, Ted. I have, I have a, a, uh, a layout question. Every Good. time I've seen this diagram, it always shows north up. Now, where's east of it? It makes a difference because yeah. we put our art always on the easternmost wall. Where's east of this? Where is Jerusalem on this? Where do you... Ah, here's what you need to know. Because it, the way it is now, you'd have to be east, east of Jerusalem to, to have it this way. That's because this predates Jerusalem. Thank you. I'll look it up. This predates Jerusalem. This is in the wilderness wandering. So even when the temple is built in Jerusalem... This is the orientation, so that, now this is interesting, this may be a, um, 
a remnant or a a re a re um, vision of ancient sun worship. Because if you, if you see what you see, north is this way. So east is out the entrance to the east, right? Uh, no, it matters. It matters where you are on Europe. Right, but this is how they would set it up because they wanted the entrance to be oriented east because that's where the sun, sun rose. And the sun would come up and shine into the enclosure. That's the same way we have the door in an outhouse. It always faces east. Oh, our outhouse didn't face east. I didn't know that. Yeah, to dry it out, huh? No, you went out there early in the morning and you wanted the sun to warm it up. Oh, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. And, of course, the wood pile is always between the outhouse and where you reside. So when you went out, you brought wood in also. <laughs> so you can find holiness in everything. That's right. <laughs> the second question... I Hold have, on, I want to say one more thing about that. Please. So when the temple was built in Jerusalem, this is also how it was oriented. And, and so when you see pictures of the temple, and the second temple, and you'll see that the door is facing east, which towards the Dead Sea. Um, and uh, that's the orientation. Has nothing. The idea of facing Jerusalem. Some of you have heard me say this before. Um, because Jerusalem became the holy mountain, this was it. Uh, Jew, when there started being a Jewish diaspora, people would face Jerusalem. But if you were in Babylonia, you faced west. Right. If you were in Egypt, you faced north. And the rabbis say. You know, wherever you are in the cardinal directions, you have to you, you 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 need to orient your prayers toward Jerusalem, which is why synagogues start getting built with, from our perspective, even in Europe, an eastern wall. It was it should have been a southeastern wall, but uh, you know, eastern, which reflects the old sun coming up in the east anyway. But then the rabbis say, in a great piece of midrash, that. Um, so if you're away from Jerusalem, you have to orient your prayers toward Jerusalem. If, what if you're in Jerusalem? Orient your prayers towards the Temple Mount. What if you're in the Temple Mount? Orient your prayers toward the Holy of Holies. What if you're in the Holy of Holies? Then orient your heart to heaven. And then they say, but what if somebody's blind or has no sense of the cardinal directions? What should they do? And the rabbis say, in that case, just orient your heart to heaven because that's what really matters. So again, it's this interesting awareness in rabbinic literature of, yes, we have a holy mountain. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not about worshiping that spot. It's about that being a place where you orient yourself so that you can focus your prayers to heaven. And I really like that teaching. Ted, you had another question? I do. The Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Is it in Ethiopia? <laughs> huh. Oh. <laughs> Here's all we know about the Ark of the Covenant. In 721 BCE, the Emperor Sennacherib of Assyria, uh, oh no, 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 not 721, that's the Northern Kingdom. In 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the Emperor of Babylonia, conquers Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes everything that's in it, and um, uh, deports the Jews. 
The Jews return 100, 100, 130 years later, and they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the accoutrements, but they don't have the ark anymore. The ark is gone. So instead, the Holy of Holies, after that time, was vacant. Nothing in it. So if the ark exists somewhere, it was lost to history 2,600 years ago. And everything that anyone says about it is a legend. Then what we know about the second temple is the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is a victory arch that still stands in Rome that shows the victory of the Romans over the uh, Judeans. And, um, and it shows the Roman soldiers carrying off the menorah and the other precious items from the temple. So they either got transported to Rome, maybe they existed in a treasury there somewhere, but the ark was long gone, and after the second temple was destroyed, we have a, this visual record of everything else being carried off as well. Yeah? Does the visual record in the ark resemble any other visual records of the... Uh... It's the only visual record we have. Well, but... It does... Oh, you mean on the, on the floors of the synagogues? Or the... Is, there, is there any other uh, visual attempt to tell us what the... Uh... What those things looked like? Yes. Um, or, or is it just the artist in Rome decided what it should One be? of the interesting things about the Arch of Titus is that we have a clear description of the menorah, very detailed. Yes. The menorah, as it's depicted in the Arch of Titus, is not accurate. Um, the depictions that we see in mosaic floors and in carvings are more accurate. It was a... It's this giant, sturdy item in the Arch of Titus with this big base. Yeah. And in fact, uh, according to the description, it has a tripod base and much finer work on it. So in fact, it's some artist's aggrandizement of that menorah. Does that help answer? Well, but I was more interested in the... Um, I'm blocking, I can't remember. The thing, the... Uh, what is the, the, the box? Oh, the ark. The ark. No, because the ark right. was... Is there any other visual representation? We have no visual representation and of the ark. we have a description of it. Detailed description of it in here. We do. Oh, yes, it's in this okay. portion. But That's because right. it was lost in 586 BCE, not in 70 CE. Yes, got it. First temple versus second temple. We have no visual record at all of what happened, what the first temple looked like, or what it... Um, um, well, particularly the important object would be... Or the, the ark itself. Yes, the ark. But we do have a detailed description through which, right down to the dimensions, you can recreate what does, that ark looked like. Does that resemble what the Romans put up on... Uh, no, the Romans didn't put a picture of the ark oh, on their arch because it had been lost for six centuries already. I misunderstood. They did... Do a menorah. Yes. I see. I misunderstood. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, they didn't attempt to put a visual representation. Of the Ark? Of the Ark. No, because the Ark didn't exist anymore. Okay. The Ark was lost when the first temple okay. was destroyed. So I just 
That's okay. Got started on the wrong assumption. Right, right. That's why the lost ark is really lost. Uh, Diana, then Gail. Could you please tell me, uh, help me understand why, if they meant this, if they people who wrote it meant it to be symbolic, and the people who read it understood, understood it. it as symbolic, it's so concrete. Sure, they're concrete symbols. I mean, think about, I mean, I don't know, I was in an art museum in, in, in uh, Tel Aviv, and, the, and uh, Reuven Rivlin's art was very symbolic, based on stuff about art history. I didn't know what impression, I didn't know about 19th century French. I didn't, and so the, the art historian who gave us a tour showed us that this animal here represents X, and this here represents Y, and this, stuff I don't know anything about, because I'm not an art historian. Um, the symbolic language of this painting was known to the people who understood the symbols, and the artist's job was to depict it in great detail. Right? It's a meaningful symbol. So the fact of it being 30 cubits and... The distances, that's, that eludes me a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that, but I bet it meant something. Of a, of a transient, uh, movable... Like, yeah, figure, the figure in, um, in ancient Japan. There's, not that I know all that much about it, but I know in some old Japanese literature I've been reading, um, there's, there's writing regarding a, trans, a, a temporary movable Well, let me put it this way. Maybe the measurements are just because that's how much material they had, right? And it became tradition. It's much more engaging for us to say, I don't know, and assume that they wouldn't have saved it in such detail if it didn't have meaning to them, and then try to kind of work our way towards it. Otherwise, you know, I'd say we're being, I mean, you could say we're being kind of arrogant uh, to assume it was just, just this way or just that way. When we have enough, ev I have enough evidence to know that so much of this was symbolic that why not all of it? Because they were organizing their universe to be represented in this. You follow what I'm saying? Now, if that's not of interest to you, for example, that's fine. But, to, but definitely, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the most fruitful path is to assume uh, that they were working on a different brain wave than we usually work. And that everything was as above, so below. As above, so below. They, the, you know, they sensed patterns. They wanted to recreate. And that's how I look at it. I mean, think about... Think, the, the masses of the people who did create the golden calf, that the, the people who were the elite, who wrote, who made this up, you know, who wrote this down, uh, thought, we've got to give them something concrete and say they got Well, it. no, I think that's the story. I'll call in you a second, Gail. I think that's the story, I, uh, the story of why this is this way. But I don't think this was a literal response to the golden cap. This was the, 
this, that's another layer of interpretation. What I want to say about this is that um, there was probably an elite. No, I'm almost sure there was an elite. Illiteracy was very, very pres- proscribed. And uh, no, not everybody necessarily understood the symbolism any more than I knew nothing about the art history that I was watching. I was just looking at nice pictures. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, this was, this was a system preserved and maintained by an elite who understood what it meant for them and their culture. And we don't know what the uh, Hoi Polloi thought about it. Um, Gail? I guess, I guess two things. One is, I, I did find further on that the stones do, each stone, each tribe mm-hmm. has its own stone. Right. And it's on the breastplate. That's right. right. But um, I know that, I just read somewhere that the gold was used as you got further into the Holy of Holies, and then silver more toward the outside, copper further out. So that's another piece of the symbolic, which one is the purest, is the purer and purer. You change mm-hmm. the metals. I'm sure there was something about colors. Just because, I'm sure there was something about colors. I know from people I know who do chakra work. I mean, there are colors associated with, there are colors, but all of these things right. reappear in different cultures in different Imagine ways. folks, yes. But, but I wanted to Go say ahead. something else, which is also that this is the blueprint as well for literally creating the home for God to dwell in, mm-hmm. in as much as God dwells anywhere. So each detail of it is there to help us sort of picture what is it like to, to walk into this place. I mean, literally. But it's a dream kind of, it's a vision. It's an inner journey. Right. And, 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 a, and a visual of recreation for each of us. Exactly. Of, because they were seriously, you know, they're in the presence of the divine at Sinai. They've just gotten the laws. And they're trying, they're like, how are we going to live with this being that says, build me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you, plural, all mm-hmm. of you. And it's real. And they've got to make it right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be worthy. And this is, however, the instructions came about, wherever they got this from. But every detail matters. It's 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 holy work to make it. Does that make it? It's yes. God's house. What I'm trying to understand is, and therefore, yeah, that I've worked, you know, as I've said many times, very hard to uh, come to an understanding of God that uh, makes sense to my mind and heart. As, as you say, life unfolding, or the force that demands freedom, or the, the, the best mm-hmm. of human potential. And I'm just trying to understand, did, did these people so long ago, how did, what did they think of God? What did it mean when they say, we got these commandments from God? Mm-hmm. What were they thinking? That's a good question. Um, that's a great question. Don't know. Um, what we, I think what we can say with some confidence is that there is that part of the human makeup that, that senses the divine, senses the, mis, the, the mysterium, the grand, whatever it is. And then we search for ways to bring that into our lives. And we are crossing many cultural chasms to try to figure out and kind of get a sense of what this meant. But I think we can do it because we're still human beings. 
And I also want us to remember that this is a people living before electric lights, before distractions, before they have the night sky. They're in a wilderness. You've ever been to the desert? They get to experience what's inside of their eyelids and they pay attention to inner life and project it out onto, in a way that we don't, by and large, because we're too busy. We're, we've, got, we've managed to distract ourselves from that. So, so I would suggest the best way to understand it would be go hiking in the desert for four or five days and then see what you think of this. And really, rather than try to judge it uh, from our, the perspective of our moment, which is completely distracted. Uh, Gail? I, oh, and then Anne? That this comes from a time where there was no, as yet, body of scientific information. We had no explanations for anything, basically. The thunder was up there. It was like, makes sense to me that the gods are rolling up, you know, stuff. And maybe it's one bowling. Maybe it's a bunch of them, but, you know, and when the, when the lightning comes down, I'm worried. Is he mad or is she mad? Or, uh -huh. I'm going to come up with whatever feels like some explanation. Some explanation. Because the entire world is nothing but magical. But now we that we... Have any, and now that we know I that the world isn't magical in that way... We then want to reject all of this because it's just childish hokum. But there's something behind it that's still completely true. And that's what I'm trying to communicate. Gail? I, I want to say we don't know that the world isn't magic. Also true. <laughs> but we, that's right. But we understand what's going on in a cloud when thunder and lightning happen. We understand that. You know, but we don't understand how the, the bigger question how the cloud got the there. Right. You why know we're here. Yeah. why we're here. So all of it, you know, for that's our modern arrogance to then reject it all as a, a superstitious bunk. Yeah, I think that's my arrogance to think, oh well, how could they have had sophisticated thoughts? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Gail, you wanted to add something, and then Anne, yeah, and I then just, Bill. I just want to say, I, want to I mean, Bob. For myself, that you know, I don't know that there was an exodus. I don't really think there was a Sinai event of this kind, I don't, but there was something that had to happen. But I don't think it was 600,000 people. I don't think it was anything like that. But, or and, when I sit with the Torah and really immerse myself, it's real. Good. It speaks to me as real in some way that I can't, I, I don't know how to treat it except to say it feels real. I got it. It is real. It's real if we are going to allow ourselves to understand that reality extends beyond our rational capability to analyze. If we're convinced that that's, that rational capability to analyze is it, the it, the end, and that we have reached, then we're idiots, basically, because we're missing out on all the things that we can't rationally explain. Uh, then, and they're real. And this is a way to communicate about it. Torah. Can I, one more thing? Yeah. Just one more, just because I want to tell you now. When I was looking up the pictures of a rod, yeah. I couldn't find it in, in, in my Dropbox. So I went back to my email, because I knew I had sent it out. And the email that came up was the one, the answer was from Bill Goldberg. Oh. oh. Bill, so Bill Goldberg is our member who we buried today. A really lovely, lovely man. And Gail said, when she was just searching for those pictures of Arad, what came up 
was Bill Goldberg's email response to her when she had sent them out before. Mm-hmm. So, that was that's real too. Yeah. That's what I wanted to t- this Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Speak a little louder. Okay, so, um, and there's, there's you know, a lot of sort of dated scholarly work on collective concepts and collective mythologies from around the world. Um, you know, so, so I'm, I'm thinking when I was, I was in Italy recently, and there, there, was, uh, there were a lot of mythological um, references to the Zodiac on buildings. And I, I think that it's, um, it's interesting that a concept such as the 12 signs of the Zodiac um, could uh, be so widespread across Occidental, Again, through the Middle East and Europe, you know, there, there's there are really a lot. Of, there's really a lot of evidence of um, that particular trend um, up through. I mean, every through England, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's really um, it, it can be sort of fun to look into um, the origins of these myth structures. Um, but it's it's definitely really speculative and um, and dated, you know. It, it's definitely really. Spe- I mean, well, not dated, but uh, you know, it, it's really. I think there are a lot of trends. Um, academia is more um, more linear now, I think, and so is more historical. So I think that um, you know a lot of more like new critical ways of looking at. Um, sorry, I, I sound pretentious. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I know it's the best we can do, Bob. Okay. Um, Anne. I was going to just make a comment on something Diane said. Um, you know, going back into history thousands and thousands and thousands of years you know like we'll go back to the caveman and the Neanderthal and you know sometime around that time how do we know that the Neanderthals didn't need to have an explanation for why the sun rose why the thunder came why the you know trees grew why the animals killed each other, you know, so there's no way, you know, there's there's nothing, there's no records, mm-hmm. and so we just have to assume that sometime when the brain was developed enough, uh, there was a need to know. A need to know. Need to know need why to these things in nature happened. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's how far back it goes. Thank you. Thank you. Let me spend the last few minutes on a much later interpretation of this. I, I will do it fairly quickly with you. So here it is. In the Middle Ages, the Zohar, 
gets written, which is a completely symbolic and spiritual interpretation of these texts. And then, in Jewish mysticism, then the Hasidic movement takes that up. So this is, this is my famed friend, the Svat Emet, in the year 1900, in Warsaw, a Hasidic teacher. We've t- studied him many times. And I'm going to try to boil this down for you. He's talking about this Torah portion. Um, and he quotes uh, a verse. Well, so I'm going I'm to make it really streamlined. The Zohar says that at Sinai, at Mount Sinai, Israel, the people of Israel, were prepared to have God bring down the temple from above for them. So there's this understanding in Jewish mysticism that there is a heavenly sanctuary that is not a physical sanctuary, but the Garden of Eden, total enlightenment, being under the wings of God at all times. Uh, and, but because of their sin of the golden calf, meaning because they lost this connection right after Mount Sinai, and descended into their small consciousness, uh, like their, 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 their uh, fear and their ego. Um, only because of that did the indwelling of the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah is the feminine presence, the indwelling presence of God, same root as the word Mishkan. The Mishkan is where the Shekhinah can dwell. The Shekhinah dwells everywhere, right, everybody? But because these people couldn't open their minds to that, even after Mount Sinai, the Shekhinah was then sent, was then had to be expressed in a contracted, reduced form known as the Mishkan, um, the earthly Mishkan. What he's getting at is that Really, God was ready to have the Shekhinah dwell in every person, in the person. Remember that verse that said, Shachanti betocham, I will dwell within you, um, and without any intermediary. And uh, when Israel saw the Red Sea split, he says, they felt themselves ready to be vessels for the Shekhinah to pour into them. And thus they said in the Song at the Sea, which is usually translated as, this is my God and I will glorify him. But a neve is a, um, uh, a shrine. And so you can also translate it, this is my God and I will enshrine him. Meaning that I will make myself into a shrine for God's energy. The children of Israel themselves were going to be the Mishkan. Because this is total enlightenment, right? We don't need any temple because God's in us and everywhere all the time. But after the golden calf, they weren't able to attain this level of awareness anymore. And so the Mishkan was created because they couldn't be the Mishkan. I think this is an incredible teaching. Right. There's a song about that, 
O Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. That one? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell, we'll, do, we'll sing that. Then he says that this is the difference between the days of the week and Shabbat. And he goes, goes on. Let me just do this briefly. Uh, the tefillin that Orthodox Jews wear and some other Jews wear too is the, what do you call the, the, how, the tefillin? A bayit. The box of tefillin is called a house. And so he says, you know, you may know that you do not, you do not wear tefillin on Shabbos. Shabbos consciousness is standing with God, is letting God just in. It's not the, like the work of days of the week. On the days of the week, we need to have this little house to hold God's energy. But on Shabbos, if we're fulfilling the intention of Shabbos, our consciousness expands and we're the house for God. And when he, said, he then quotes uh, Song of Songs, which says, set me as a seal upon your heart, which means within you. Um, and uh, uh, so he says that the reason we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos is we don't need a house for God on Shabbos because Shabbos, and he's not talking about Shabbos be, like, because it's Saturday. He's talking about the consciousness of being aware of all creation and the fact that we then become the house for God. Um, and when we are in this consciousness, he says, before we fall, right? It is a fall. It's a fall. We, we come to a lower level. When, when we get to that point, there will be no need for a uh, contraction of our understanding of God into a particular place. So that's a Hasidic teaching about it that says that make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them is actually that I may dwell within you. But because we humans can't sustain that, we have these external representations that are truly inadequate, but the best we can do. Do you follow what I'm saying? I love that teaching because he's telling us that the day will come, right? When, as Isaiah says, the knowledge of God will fill us the way the waters cover the earth and all nations will uh, go together and say, let's go up to that holy mountain and uh, nations shall not lift up sword against nation. It's this amazing passage from Isaiah of the sense we all have that this is possible, but we can't do it. But it's possible. We know it's like we have that feeling, but we're not able to pull it off. And uh, he's saying that Shabbat is the time to remember it's possible and make ourselves into those vessels, uh, even though we're not up for living without those symbolic representations. I love that teaching, and I wanted, I wanted to share it with you. Um, any other it's, any other. Questions, comments, thoughts well, before? Well, for a kid that thought this was a boring section, yeah. you certainly evolved yourself. I know. Generated a lot of content. I know. Me and Gail and all of us who've been studying Torah for a while, it just gets better and better. It's really cool. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. Thanks. So um, we're going to stop so I can get over to Bill's house for Shiva Minion. And uh, we'll meet again next week. Um, 
for the next portion. Oh, here's the song. Oh Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Ve'asuli mikdash v'shachanti v'tocham v'anachnu nevarich yad me'atah v'ad olam you're welcome. That song's by a country singer. And then, I don't know which colleague of mine attached the Hebrew words to it. Yeah.